uh, being here Christmas Eve and listening to the scripture readings and the songs that uh, go between each. Uh, if you have not been here for that, I'd strongly encourage you to come. It will it'll make your Christmas Christ-centered for sure. It's a highly encouraging time. Uh, Christmas obviously is on us and uh, probably lots of expectations coming up for all of us. Christmas Day, who we're spending that with, who we're seeing, maybe especially for some of the junior ones, what Christmas presents are we getting or not getting? Have you guys ever set your minds, your hearts, your hopes, desires on something and then got it? And then found out it wasn't all it was cracked up to be. That you really, really wanted something. And maybe something that you felt you really needed. But what you found was the thing you got that you really wanted. It wasn't what you really needed. That could be true of a Christmas present, a job, a house, a spouse, a church, a political victory. Uh, Politics has, has been fresh on my mind for some time. I talked to Larry about this earlier. I put new batteries in, but they weren't charged, so I wondered if that was going to come back to bite me. It just did. Okay. Um, politics, of course, is, it just looms over large in the country and the culture, doesn't it? We just came through a mid-year, midterm election. As a matter of fact, you know, there's lawsuits still going. Some, some races were just called from November, just here in the last week. Lawsuits are following up some of those results. So many votes were so close. So that's wound down. For, for some, there's elation over some political voting results. There's disappointment over others and incredulity, unbelief over other political election results as well. A democracy is a funny thing, like the weather, the political winds can shift and change, bringing unexpected and undesired changes. We love the thought of democracy, though the outcomes of the process often disappoint. We have a government we really want, but sometimes we find it's not the government we really need. Winston Churchill said this, by the way, this is political this morning, and it's not, okay? So... Uh, Winston Churchill said, Many forms of government have been tried and will be tried in this world of sin and woe. No one pretends that democracy is perfect or all wise. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. Most of us are enamored with the democratic republic we live in as a concept, as a, as a way of of politics being done, of rule over people. And there's good reasons. By God's providence, our democratic republic, that form of governance, a form of governance most of us want. It's the kind of government we think we want. It's a good thing. And it's produced, certainly in the history of the United States, unparalleled freedoms and prosperity. Most of us still feel very blessed to live in the United States with the kind of government we have while at the same time we acknowledge its shortcomings, and it certainly has those as well. The founders brilliantly combined a variety of philosophies and historic forms of governance to form what's now called a more perfect union, a government founded on the separation of powers such that competing interests would sort of outweigh the worst of other competing interests. 
But even the brilliance of the form of government they set up that we still appreciate today had limits which they themselves recognized. John Adams famously said this, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. So if you apply that rubric, that understanding about a democratic republic to the culture you and I call home today, how good a fit is that? How good is a democratic republic with the values the culture we live in today holds about evenly, if not a majority? Uh, there's another uh, man, Alexander Fraser Teitler. He was a Scottish attorney, writer, and professor, and, and he had this to say. He lived and was speaking and writing at the same time the U.S. was being formed in the French Revolution as well. Listen to what he said. A democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves largesse from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates promising the most benefits from the public treasury, with the result that a democracy always collapses over loose fiscal policy, always followed by a dictatorship. Americans used to be askance when our national debt was in the single digits. It's over $30 trillion today. It's a joke if anybody thinks that's going to get paid off. And that does not, by the way, speak to unfunded mandates like Medicare and Social Security. Teitler also said this, the average age of the world's great civilizations has been 200 years. These nations have progressed through the following sequence. So guys, we're on a roller coaster. It's a bell curve. This is the sequence, he says. From bondage to spiritual faith. From spiritual faith to great courage. From great courage to liberty. You can see our country's history in this same thing, can't you? As it describes phase to phase. To liberty. From liberty to abundance. That's the top of the roller coaster. From abundance to selfishness, from selfishness to complacency, complacency to dependency, dependency back to bondage. Where do you see the United States on that roller coaster ride? I think we're somewhere near the end. Every clear-eyed critic observes at the end of the day that no democracy can rise higher than the morals, the ethics, and the goals of the majority of voters. It's a given. That's the way these work. For all its benefits, democracy's days, friends, are numbered. And that's a very good thing. So, tell you where we're going. I've lost some of you. It's too much history and too many quotes. Uh, this is part history lesson. We're going to do a hop, skip, and a jump through the Old Testament to get to, yes, an incarnation story in Luke 1. Okay, so that's where we'll end. But, but I want to develop a theme. What do we want in a government? And this is a big deal around the world today. Historically, it's been true. It's true for us today as well, right? What do we want in a government? And is what we want what we need? And I would argue what most of us want is not, in fact, what we need. So go back historically and biblically. God instituted a relationship with Israel at Mount Sinai with a covenant. So you remember the Exodus story? Jacob and the kids, they go south to Egypt. They multiply over 400 years. They end up slaves, and God comes down in the Exodus, and he leads them out by a strong arm, right? Through the Red Sea, he takes them to Sinai, and he tells them there, hey, this is the deal. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. And we're going to operate this relationship through this covenant. I'm going to tell you what to do, 
And uh, when you obey me, you'll get certain results. And when you disobey me, you'll get others. So that was the deal. He would rule over them. The priesthood God established would administer justice as needed through those laws. So the priesthood was part of the covenant. And they would explain this is what God requires of us. Later, God raised up judges. So if you think of the history going through, you've got Moses in the law, and then he, it switches gears. You've got Joshua with settling the land, and then you get into the judges. And so sporadically, these guys are raised up by God primarily to take out um, invading armies. They're going to defend the nation. But the nation of Israel found this arrangement unsatisfactory. God says, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. They say this isn't good enough, effectively. So this is 1 Samuel 8. Now, Samuel is the last of the judges. He's the last of the judges, and he's been an effective leader for Israel. They've loved him, but he's getting old. And so they say to him, the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, behold, you're old and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me, serving other gods, so they are also doing you. You're just getting what I've been getting all along, God says. Obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall rule over them. So Israel's got a concept. They, they know, they really know what they really want, and they really want a king. And so the Lord says to Samuel, now tell them what it's going to cost them. And guys, <laughs> he, Samuel tells them, he says, guys, this is the thing. The king that you want, he's going to take every best thing you have. He's going to take your sons and your daughters. He's going to take your vineyards, your groves, you name it, your livestock. He's going to take the best of everything. You're going to be servants like you were back in Egypt again. They say, that's okay. That's what we want. We want the king. 1 Samuel 8, verse 19. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel with this warning. They said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. So Israel gets the government they wanted. They get the king they wanted. So the first king of Israel is King Saul. And guys, he looks like the king they want. Because he's tall. Scripture says he's a head taller than everybody else. He's strong. He's handsome. He looks like the kind of king they want. So they got exactly what they wanted. But Saul was also ungodly, unholy, carnal. He was, in a word, faithless. He was incapable of being the kind of king Israel needed. So they want a king, and he looks like the king we want, but he was incapable of blessing them the way God intended because he was faithless towards God. King Saul did prove helpful in some ways because he effectively defended the nation through most of his life. So they got the king they wanted, but not the king they needed. Early in his reign, King Saul was losing the soldiers. His army was... was melting away into the hills because 
They needed to engage the Philistines, and Samuel was supposed to show up and offer sacrifices to get God's favor before they went into battle. And Samuel hadn't shown, and so King Saul took it upon himself against the covenant God had made with them to take up the role of a priest as well. So Saul, the king, now takes up the role of priest. This is not a good thing, by the way, in the Old Testament, when kings presume to take on themselves a role God has not given them, and it wasn't good for Saul. And so finally, he's offered up the offerings, and Samuel comes along. This is 1 Samuel 13, 13. So Samuel says, Saul, what'd you do? Well, I forced myself. You know, everybody's leaving, so I forced myself to do this thing to please God to get his favor. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. What does God want in a king or a ruler for his people? He wants a man that has God's heart, that values what God values, that sees life as God sees it. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So God's rejecting you for a man that has God's own heart. Saul could never be the kind of king God could bless Israel with, so God determined to give Israel the kind of king he wanted for them, the kind of king he knew they needed, a man after God's own heart. And in that, God chose David. Now, if you read the story of David being chosen, you've got to chuckle a little bit. So God tells Samuel, okay, I'm going to get Saul's replacement. So you go down to the house of Jesse down in Bethlehem area. And so Samuel shows up, and there's more to the story than that, but he shows up, and Jesse calls his sons. And Samuel looks at him, and the first one, he's, he's like Saul. He's tall, he's strong, he's handsome. And Samuel says to himself, this has got to be the guy, because he looks like a king. And God, I assume, silently says to Samuel, he's not the one. And you're confused because you're looking on the outside. You don't see the heart, and I see the heart. So David hasn't even been called in. Samuel told Jesse, call all your sons. Jesse doesn't think that includes his youngest son, David, who's out back taking care of the sheep. David's probably around 15 years old here. And we remember that Jesse, from the story of Ruth, <clears throat> is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz from the tribe of Judah, the tribe God said his choice of king would come. When Samuel anointed David as the next king, David did not look like the king. And he certainly did not look like the kind of king Israel said they wanted. He was too young. He wasn't tall and strong like his older brothers. He did not look the part. But he had what God was after, a man who wanted what God wanted. David was the kind of man who had God's heart to be God's leader. Now, though he was anointed king in his youth, it would be another 10 to 15 years before David would take up the kingship first in the city of Hebron for seven years, and then, or, yeah, for seven years, and then later in Jerusalem. So he's in Hebron, sorry. He's in Hebron for a period of years, then he goes to Jerusalem before he's the king from Jerusalem over all of Israel. So what you see, especially in 1 Samuel, is that much of his life, though he's anointed as king, he's a king in exile. He has to flee King Saul. These guys are after him. But while he's in exile, People flock to David, and guess who flocks to him? The disenchanted, the outcasts, the ones who couldn't get justice in Israel 
fled to David during his reign, if we can call it that, in exile. Now, though David sinned greatly, if you know the rest of the story, he was characterized by his great love and devotion to God. He represented to future generations what God wanted in his kings. And, of course, what you'll see when you read through kings especially is that every king is compared to David. David is the high watermark because he represents the kind of king God knows his nation needs. These are some of the things God, uh, David did. He was a victorious king. He put down rebellion within the nation, and he effectively defended it against oppression from outward as well. First Chronicles 18.14 says, He administered justice and righteousness for all his people. David did not look on outward appearances. He was just, not based on who someone was, but everyone got justice under King David. He established the Levites in groups to lead worship. He built the instruments used for worship. He wrote many of the songs sung to honor the Lord in worship as well. This is all out of Chronicles. David also devised the plans. He set aside the materials for the temple his son Solomon would build. We call it Solomon's temple. The only thing Solomon did was he got the remnant, the last elements that were needed physically, and he built. But the plan was David's. David had procured the wealth and almost all the material to do it. In David, God showed Israel what a just and godly king would look like, the kind of king they needed. And to David, God promised that one of his sons would sit on his throne in a kingdom that would last forever. That's 2 Samuel 7. That's one of the key promises in the Bible, in all the Bible, that from David's line would come a king whose kingdom would last forever. Well, skip forward 400 years. And David's descendants in the nation of Israel or Judah, Israel's been dispossessed a hundred years earlier, Judah's gone into exile in Babylon. And while they're in Babylon, God continues to speak, and he speaks through his prophets, two of the key prophets in captivity are Ezekiel and Daniel. The book of Daniel contains a number of visions that foretold the history of the world, and it was through the lens of the empires and the leaders that would establish those empires in the years to come. So those empires prophesied by Daniel were the Babylonian empire that he lived in and under, the Medo-Persians that followed them, the Greek empire, and finally the Roman empire. These empires, by the way, were the pinnacle of wealth, power, and glory. In their day, this looked like as good as it could get. These empires, their wealth, uh, to live there would have been living high on the hog, right? This was as good as it got. These key governments ruled over the earth for 600 years up to Jesus' birth and then the Roman Empire, of course, beyond that as well. And guys, we're still affected by these empires today, by their politics, by their literature, by their math, by their philosophy. Elements of those empires are still inculcated into our culture today. But when Daniel saw images of those governments and empires, they were pictured in Daniel 2 as stuff taken out of the ground. Stuff taken out of the ground. So gold, silver, iron, bronze, and finally clay. That's Daniel 2. And then later in Daniel 7 and 8, these empires. So again, you're thinking of the glory of the earth. You're you're thinking of the pinnacle of wealth and power and glory, but they're represented in Daniel 7 and 8 as beasts, as beasts of hideous strength that devour and destroy one another. You get the contrast here. It's the height of the world's power and glory, and God looks at them and he says they're like savage beasts. 
After the empires of the world had been shown to Daniel, this is in Daniel chapter 2, he saw a stone, the text says, that's not touched by any human hand, it's taken from a mountain, and it smashes the feet of that first image, not beast, but this statue of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay. It smashes it so forcefully and fully that it says there's nothing left of those empires except dust that the wind blows away that the kingdom God would eventually establish would be so full in its consummation that there wouldn't even be a hint of anything that preceded it. This is Daniel 2.44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So to David, God said, one of your descendants is going to reign over a kingdom that never ends. Here in Daniel, God says, it's going to be a stone. It's not going to be mere mortal's attempt. It's going to be my doing, and I'm going to start a kingdom that will never end. There's this reference again. The mighty empires that ruled the earth and the kings that led them were all found to be deficient. Again, here's the thought. None, none measured up to what these folks needed. Often they got what they wanted, but they never got what they needed. God intended to send Israel and the world the king they needed and the government of his choosing. So, back to this country and its inception. The founders of this country knew that power tends to corrupt. And guys, they'd come from Britain and there was a kingdom there and the king was ruling in ways that were illegal even within British law and the British realm. And so they wanted to avoid this same thought. They wanted to divide positions of power. They said if one person has power, it tends to corrupt them. This is what we'll do. We'll take those centers of power and we'll split them up. So power will compete with power. And that's the democratic republic we have today. So it was meant to avoid corruption and the abuse of power. But democracies, excuse me, democracies are inherently also inefficient. If you think about what it takes to get a bill through the federal government, the House, the Senate, and signed by the President, very few bills get through. Many of them we wish wouldn't, but it's very difficult and it's very inefficient. What if there was a person possessing divine wisdom, think of someone like Solomon, true benevolence, and a desire to lead people such that their best interests were always maintained because God was always honored? If you found such a person, you could give him unlimited power because the abuse of power wouldn't be an issue. And you'd get rid of the inefficiencies that are part and parcel of a democratic republic because the king, with that wisdom and that benevolence, would know what to do and could do so efficiently. Well, in Isaiah 32.1, God told Jews, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. He says, guys, there is a day when I'm going to establish a king and he's going to rule, and it will be the rule that you need. So it's coming. Wait for it and look for it. Don't fear, God said. I'm going to send a righteous king. Uh, Daniel 7 is, uh, to me, it's one of the most uh, graphic passages in all the Bible, one of the most glorious as well. And in Daniel 7, Daniel sees God on a throne that's, that's fire. The throne is fire. If you think about a passage like Revelation 22, there's an image of God on the throne, and from the throne comes a river of life, and the trees of life are on both sides of the river. Well, in Daniel 7, the throne is fire, 
And the river coming from the throne is fire. And fire purifies. The thought is, God on the throne is holy and just. He's righteous. There's nothing, nothing untoward about him. So this is the image of God, the flames of fire, the river of fire. This is Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw, he says, in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. This one that comes on the clouds of heaven is approaching the ancient of days on the throne in a river or through a river of fire. He's as pure as the God sitting on the throne. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. In Daniel 7, you got the image of the Father presenting the kingdoms of the earth to God the Son. Now, to the point this morning. So fast forward to Luke 1. You can turn there if you want. Luke 1, when the angel Gabriel shows up to a little Jewish girl in the city of Nazareth, a thousand years after King David and the promise God made there, 700 years after the promises of Isaiah, 500 years after the visions of Daniel, we understand that God is fulfilling his promise to Israel and the world that his king had finally come, that God's king, the king he promised, had finally come. Remember that Gabriel shows up and Mary is frightened, of course. This is Luke 1, 29 through 33. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. That promise to David a thousand years earlier is being fulfilled. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The one born to you is the Savior of Daniel 7. He's the one that can go through the river of fire and receive the kingdom from God. God's announcement to Mary meant that God would combine in himself deity and kingship in the incarnation of God the Son. Israel and the world would find the government they needed at last in this coming king who would be both God and man. We want a king. God says, okay, I'm going to give you a king, but this time it's going to be a king who has my heart because it will be God the Son taking on our humanity in the incarnation. So in Jesus' birth, the king we needed was born. The king, and the emphasis here this morning is Jesus as king. In Jesus' birth, friends, the kingdom of God had come to earth because the king came. Like Yahweh in Samuel's day, Israel rejected Jesus in his incarnation. Though Jesus presented himself to Israel as their promised king, like young David, Jesus didn't look like the king Israel wanted. And John the Baptist said, hey, would you go? I'm in prison. I can't go talk to him. Would you, you guys go talk to him and see if he's really the one we're waiting for? And Jesus quoted Isaiah 35, and he said, go tell John, the lame walk, the blind see, the poor have good news preached to them. I'm it. So he was rejected and crucified, though that too, as we've talked about recently, by God's design and for our good. Jesus never stopped being a king, and he's a king today. Remember, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection on the day of Pentecost, 
Peter said to the Jewish crowd that day, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him Lord and Christ. Remember, Christ is anointed. That When we say Messiah, we're just saying the anointed one. Kings were anointed. Their choice by God was indicated by being anointed with oil. God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He was it. He is it. Today, like David's early life, Jesus is a king in exile. Jesus is the king. He was born king. He lived as a king. He offered the kingdom to Israel, but it was rejected. Jesus reigns as a king over the earth today, but he's a king in exile. He's even now ruling his subjects on earth as members of his kingdom. So if we say, is the kingdom of God, is it realized? Well, no, not fully, because the king physically sits in heaven. He's not on the earth, but he still claims earth as part of his kingdom over his subjects. Every person born again through faith in Jesus is transferred, Colossians 1.13 says, out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Guys, we don't just change address, we change kingdoms in our salvation. Though Christians around the world inhabit various nations, our true citizenship is ultimately as members of Jesus' kingdom, Philippians 3.20. Our role within the nations of the earth is as ambassadors of King Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.20. Our words and actions to the unsaved world are meant to represent King Jesus' word and will. For Christians to live as if Jesus isn't king is a denial of the incarnation. And this is the thing I want to emphasize for us, for us today. We talk about believing in Jesus for salvation, and guys, at the end of the day, it's all that matters, right? Heaven or hell, this is an easy choice. Does anything else matter except where I spend eternity? Nothing else matters. Jesus is Savior, we're good, we're all in. But this is the thing. If you and I think we can come to Jesus, the good shepherd, and he's less than a king, we have not believed the gospel and we have not met the king God sent to this earth. Christians are called to think of Jesus, to treat Jesus, to interact with Jesus as a king. You and I have the rights he gives us and no more and no less. And when we act like it's on us to decide whether we'll obey or not, we're acting as if he's a puppet king. He's no king at all. He, was, he came as king. And when he comes back, he comes back as king. That's the thing we need to get a hold of for Christmas this year, at least for Mike. Right now, in Christ, God has given us the king we need. Jesus is the king we need. We need Christ rising, reigning over our minds, our thoughts, our affections, our words. We need Christ reigning over our families. If you're a parent raising kids at home, do they know you serve the Lord Jesus Christ? Do they know that their parents worship Christ? Do you bend the knee at home to Christ as king? We need Christ undisputedly reigning over his church. The elders here routinely pray, 1 Peter 5, we are under shepherds. We take no more upon ourselves than, than God says. Jesus is the head of the church. It's incumbent on all of us to say Christ is head of the church. This world needs Christ reigning supremely over all before it will ever experience peace on earth and goodwill toward all men.
In that vein, every celebration of Christmas is a reminder that just as Jesus came from heaven to earth in his birth, he's coming again in power and glory to establish his kingdom on earth. We wait for, we long for, we look for the day that Jesus returns to take up his earthly throne. Just as Israel waited for Messiah's arrival for a thousand years from King David, the church has been waiting for Jesus' return for two millennia. And we're called to wait expectantly. The kingdoms of this world will soon, I'm confident, become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, Revelation eleven fifteen. Friends, there will be no mistaking Jesus' identity in his return. He'll look like a king. He rides from heaven through the skies on a white war horse. He's followed by the hosts of heaven. His eyes are fire. His face shines like the sun. His skin shimmers like heated bronze. He wears multiple crowns. He holds an iron scepter. And on his thigh is the declaration of his identity, King of all kings and Lord over all lords. The question for us is, do we know him? Do we know him? Do we own him? Have we bowed the knee to Jesus to save us? We're called to. Acts 17, God calls all men through the gospel to repent, to bend the knee to Jesus as Savior and Lord. Have we owned him? Guys, this is true. Every day, does anybody know that Jesus is our king by what we say and how we conduct ourselves and what we do? Are we living in subjection to him? Are we acting as his heralds? Guys, and part of this sharing the gospel is not a happy message. It's a warning. It's a call to repent and believe while you may, because the day will come when you may not. And just as Noah's ark was open for a hundred years, the door one day closed, and that opportunity was over, and the day of salvation comes, and the day of salvation ends. And God warns people in Psalm 95 and again in Hebrews, don't hear God's word and then turn away as if another day will do. Because he's calling in the gospel not just as a savior but as a king. Are we living with the hope of seeing the one despised and rejected for our salvation enthroned in honor and glory? As we enjoy our holidays with family and friends, and I hope we do, I hope it's a great season Do we raise our glasses to Jesus, the founder of every feast, the Lord of our halls and our homes, as our sovereign and as our king? That's my hope. God help us. Rise with me and read together from Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish.